Blog Talk Radio. Hi, welcome everyone to the People's Medicine Show. We're starting about three minutes late tonight. I'm going to begin the show with a song that I hear on my local radio show all the time, um, um, Bonnie Raitt cover by Sister Roby.
I do it every month on the first Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It's at Blog Talk Radio backslash Susan Weed. And, yeah, I've been listening to some of Susan Weed's uh, blog talks, and I really have been refreshed by her viewpoints about not letting a lot of the mass hysteria infect our own lives and um, to be able to tune a lot of that out. Um, yeah, last month I was worried about um, whether Bernie Sanders was going to be the Democratic nominee, and I wasn't really um, concerned about uh, a potential pandemic. But it appears that uh, I think on March 17th of this year, the president went on TV and said he's recommending the entire country uh, stay at home if you can for 15 days. And from there, it, it just kind of went, I think the previous week to, to that, people were already uh, sensing that something like that would happen, so they were all like raiding the stores, and there was a lot of um, that feeling of scarcity that was uh, attacking people, and then I noticed, um, I was looking at all the social media feeds, and people were making fun of the people that were running to the store to buy, you know, 50 uh, rolls of toilet paper, and what occurred to me was like, wow, that is so cool that people like when they have a scarcity thing that, yeah, a 50-pack roll of toilet paper will make that person feel okay. And um, it, that's what occurred to me, you know, that everyone compartmentalizes their, um, their fear of not being prepared for something into something like that. <laughs> I have to go to the store and make sure I have 50 rolls of toilet paper in my house. And it just so happened that thousands of people across the country uh, thought the same idea, you know, that that's going to make me feel safe. But um, I've been using herbs like elderberry for over 10 years, and um, I think I've been using elderberry for like 20 years. I used to buy it as a commercial, like, syrup. And then um, when I became interested in herbs, I found out, oh, I could just buy some dried elderberries anytime and make up a batch of syrup for myself anytime. And it's like sort of one of my traveling herbs that um, I'll bring with me. I'll bring hypericum. I'll bring some a little uh, bottle of elderberry syrup. And I do believe that using something like elderberry does reduce the severity of when you catch some kind of viral illness. And um, the other really wonderful thing that I'm noticing uh, in the past month is um, something that I... Um, grew up with. I grew up in the New York City area, and my mother worked in Manhattan, and she raised me from a very young age that you wash your hands. You do not touch your face. You know, wash your hands. Do not touch your face, and you will not get sick. And I'm kind of happy that that's being put out into the um, public sphere and just really overemphasized at this point, because I guess it will, it will become widespread common sense where it already is widespread common sense for many of us but um perhaps people that live in cities are a little bit more attuned that uh yeah you you got to keep your hands away from your face or else you're going to catch something 
And um, I'm really happy that, you know, I was raised in New York City and sort of um, have a preparation for, you know, outbreaks of diseases. And um, it happens when people live amongst each other. It seems there's no, you know, I don't think this strategy of not catching the virus is the right strategy. That, you know, just expect to be able to catch it and perhaps um, have a healthy lifestyle that's going to reinforce you and not fall into that 10% who, is, who are being killed by a coronavirus right now. It, it looks like about 10% of people, something like that. And I don't even know if that's accurate. I think it may be 10% of people who go to the hospital and need to be hospitalized for the coronavirus die. So um, I think a lot of people have this coronavirus. Uh, I was in five airports. I visited um, Florida at the end of February, and I was in five airports. I was in LAX. I was in Newark. I was buying food. I was, you know, not really on guard. I was aware. So who knows? Perhaps I was a carrier. And then I've been reading these things today about asymptomatic people, and it's it appears that truly asymptomatic people, I guess it's like semantics, and asymptomatic, you have zero symptoms, you know, and that is very rare, it appears. And I was reading a pretty good article today on, and it came from ProPublica.org. So that, um, I think it was called, What We Need to Understand About Asymptomatic Carriers If We're Going to Beat the Coronavirus. A wonderful read. I don't know if I'm going to read too much on today's show. Perhaps I'll just do a, a short show this month. I uh, was listening to the latest uh, episode of Hash Church, and I clipped a beautiful segment where they were talking about building out the infrastructure for hemp and how um, many of the hemp processing facilities on the planet Earth today are operated in uh, regions of Europe where this machinery was built uh, 100 years ago and it's not easily rebuilt. And, um, for, you know, it, for the type of machinery that we need to process hemp on the scale that we can grow it is, um, you know, it's astronomical, the expenses. This, uh, to, to build out an industry uh, where we're using hemp instead of trees for our paper goods and building products. Um, we're looking at billions and billions of dollars, and it may take um, the government to actually put out this money to build out um, an infrastructure for, hey, uh, public health. Hey, isn't that cool, you know, that people are thinking about public health lately, thinking about you know, they're discovering, yeah, there's policies that are set in place. There's, there's lists of essential medicines that, um, that most, even very poor, poor countries with very little resources have these lists of um, stockpiles of medicines that are considered essential. And I was looking at uh, when they were talking about the chloroquine a couple weeks ago, how that's considered, you know, it's just a basic malaria medicine that's I think it's on every country's list of essential medicines, and it's it's stockpiled. You know, I believe all over the world, there's no shortage of this. And whether it actually um, will keep someone from dying from the coronavirus, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I really can't tell you that. And but it was interesting how 
I think Elon Musk put it on his Twitter feed and then it just spread like wildfire. Oh, chloroquine is the, is the magic bullet that's going to save us from this virus. So I hope you're not canceling your life. Um, you know, whoever's listening right now, um, you know, I hope you're not um, suffering too much financially you know, from not being able to work for 15 days. I'm pretty sure that there's many people across the United States that um, did not have uh, 15 days of uh, income set aside. You know, they did not have a personal infrastructure in their life to be able to deal with. Okay, you're going to be, you're not going to be able to um, uh, work for the next 15 days, and uh, you should have a plan set in place to do that. And I, you know, I'm trying to tune into what's going on with other people, and a lot of people. Um, you know, they they use the, the this time of just staying at home and, you know, okay, let's listen to the government. We'll stay home for 15 days. And and um, a lot of people have rediscovered the joys that they have when they have the time and not all these things pressing them. You, you see a lot of people talking about, you know, they were rediscovering cooking and that they were rediscovering playing board games with their family. And um, that's that's so great, you know, that that is like the third river of healing, you know, re-engage with, with energies that, you know, that you know, that um, third river of healing, restore energetic connections, you know, and I'm really happy that, you know, perhaps there is a lot of good that came out of this kind of drastic measure to tell people to all everyone stay home for the next 15 days and um i think i left the house maybe two or three times a week and i have um an outdoor i have an outdoor job on a regenerative farm about uh 20 minutes away from my house i went to a behavioral therapist i went to a, do- a regular yearly doctor's appointment and i also got my car fixed so i was not really you know i was not um going to the store every day to um, get groceries. And I don't know. I don't feel like my life changed that much. And what was fortunate was I was uh, engaged in bringing in income in my house using Uber and Lyft. And something happened in my, uh, <laughs> my, my Uber and Lyft business in the beginning of January. My car developed a really nasty um, noise in the back wheel and that you know I was taking my responsibilities very seriously and I wouldn't drive people until the noise in my car got fixed and I think I went back to the mechanic I think I went to the dealer three times I went to another and then finally the part was ordered all the way from France and it was delivered and last week I got my uh, car back to normal where I can uh, begin driving Uber and Lyft again. And so I think the scarcity that a lot of people felt right off the bat, like I was feeling that scarcity since January, you know, not having that additional money coming in. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate that, you know, a a new opportunity uh, started for me. Uh, I was hired to uh, manage an Airbnb rental here, but we're getting cancellations, uh, you know, the wazoo right now. And the state of Hawaii, I don't know if it is even going to allow too many visitors in without um, 
I don't really know how the state of Hawaii is going to really um, handle uh, April, May, and June. But I think uh, we got a lot of um, uh, cancellations for the month of June. So yeah, the state of Hawaii uh, is really dependent on um, tourism, but at the same time, we have a lot of food that grows here. And if it's just the people who live here, we are a very self-sustaining place. But we're, we're famous for importing almost all our food, but almost all our human beings on these, on these islands are visitors. So um, now that it's just people who live here, we can really uh, concentrate on our local food economy. And I hope that the outdoor markets are going to resume very soon. And I think a lot of people are like me. You know, they're not going to stop going to uh, outdoor um, food markets and things like that. And um, so I'm going to play uh, the only clip that I have for this uh, month's show. And it's a message from the future by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who is a junior congressman from the Bronx and a fellow Bernie Sanders uh, supporter. And meaning I'm getting really sick of just being in that category because now there's, there's a whole segment of the news. I think it's mostly The Hill and the journalist Crystal Ball, who's on YouTube a lot. And I'm like, oh, is that really the Bernie Sanders um segment of the media, and I, it's very easy now to recognize, oh, that's the Joe Biden segment of the media, and that's the Donald Trump segment of the media. <laughs> so I guess Alexandria Cortez is a segment of the Bernie Sanders media, and I wanted to just um, play, uh, play this clip, which is about seven minutes long, and um, yeah, this is a voice of our young generation, and it's a message about Let's build out this infrastructure, this infrastructure of public health, this infrastructure of new green energies like hemp. So um, I'm going to play Alexandra Cortez, and I'll be back in about seven minutes. And I think I'm going to be ending the show pretty soon tonight. So I'll, um, I'll talk to you soon. Ah, the bullet train from New York to D.C. It always brings me back to when I first started making this commute. In 2019, I was a freshman in the most diverse Congress in history. Up to that point, it was a critical time. I'll never forget the children in our community. They were so inspired to see this new class of politicians who reflected them navigating the halls of power. It's often said, you can't be what you can't see. And for the first time, they saw themselves. I think there was something similar with the Green New Deal. We knew that we needed to save the planet and that we had all the technology to do it. But people were scared. They said it was too big, too fast, not practical. I think that's because they just couldn't picture it yet. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start with how we got here. 1977, New York. A senior scientist named James Black made a presentation about how burning fossil fuels could eventually lead to global temperatures rising four or five degrees Fahrenheit. Within two years, one of the world's biggest super tankers was outfitted with a state-of-the-art lab to measure CO2 in the ocean, gathering more data about global warming. Guess who was doing all of this research? 
Exxon Mobil, the oil and gas company. Oh yeah, Exxon knew this whole time, as did our politicians. Ten years later, James Hansen, NASA's top climate scientist, told Congress he was 99% certain that global warming was happening and caused by humans. That was 1988, the year before I was even born. So did Exxon listen to the science, including their own? Did they change business models, invest in renewables? No, the opposite. They knew and they doubled down. They and others spent millions setting up a network of lobby groups and think tanks to create doubt and denial about climate change. It was an effort designed to attack and dispute the very kind of science they themselves had been doing. And it worked. Politicians went to bat for fossil fuels and these massive corporations kept digging and mining, drilling and fracking like there was no tomorrow. America became the biggest producer and consumer of oil in the world. Fossil fuel companies made hundreds of billions while the public paid the lion's share to clean up their disasters. We lost a generation of time we'll never get back. Entire species will never get back. Natural wonders gone forever. And in 2017, Hurricane Maria destroyed the place where my family was from, Puerto Rico. It was like a climate bomb. It took as many American lives as 9-11. And in the next year, when I was elected to Congress, the world's leading climate scientists declared another emergency. They told us that we had 12 years left to cut our emissions in half, or hundreds of millions of people would be more likely to face food and water shortages, poverty, and death. 12 years to change everything, how we got around, how we fed ourselves, how we made our stuff, how we lived and worked, everything. The only way to do it was to transform our economy, which we already knew was broken since the vast majority of wealth was going to just a small handful of people and most folks were falling further and further behind. It was a true turning point. Lots of people gave up. They said we were doomed. But some of us remembered that as a nation, we'd been in peril before. The Great Depression, World War II. We knew from our history how to pull together to overcome impossible odds. And at the very least, we owed it to our children to try. The wave began when Democrats took back the House in 2018, and then the Senate and the White House in 2020, and launched the decade of the Green New Deal, a flurry of legislation that kicked off our social and ecological transformation to save the planet. It was the kind of swing for the fence ambition we needed. Finally, we were entertaining solutions on the scale of the crises we faced without leaving anyone behind. That included Medicare for All, the most popular social program in American history. We also introduced the Federal Jobs Guarantee, a public option including dignified living wages for work. Funnily enough, the biggest problem in those early years was a labor shortage. We were building a national smart grid, retrofitting every building in America, putting trains like this one all across the country. We needed more workers. That group of kids from my neighborhood were right in the middle of it all, especially this one girl, Ileana. Her first job out of college was with AmeriCorps Climate, restoring wetlands and bayous in coastal Louisiana. 
Most of her friends were in her union, including some oil workers in transition. They took apart old pipelines and got to work planting mangroves with the same salary and benefits. Of course, when it came to healing the land, we had huge gaps in our knowledge. Luckily, indigenous communities offered generational expertise to help guide the way. Ileana got restless, tried her hand as a solar plant engineer for a while, but eventually made her career in raising the next generation as part of the Universal Child Care Initiative. As it turns out, caring for others is valuable, low-carbon work, and we started paying real money to folks like teachers, domestic workers, and home health aides. Those were years of massive change, and not all of it was good. When Hurricane Sheldon hit Southern Florida, parts of Miami went underwater for the last time. But as we battled the floods, fires, and droughts, we knew how lucky we were to have started acting when we did. And we didn't just change the infrastructure, we changed how we did things. We became a society that was not only modern and wealthy, but dignified and humane too. By committing to universal rights like healthcare and meaningful work for all, we stopped being so scared of the future. We stopped being scared of each other, and we found our shared purpose. Ileana heard the call too, and in 2028, she ran for office in the first cycle of publicly funded election campaigns. And now she occupies the seat that I once held. I couldn't be more proud of her, a true child of the Green New Deal. When I think back to my first term in Congress, riding that old school Amtrak in 2019, all of this was still ahead of us. And the first big step was just closing our eyes and imagining it. We can be whatever we have the courage to see. Okay, yeah, that was from the Intercept YouTube channel and titled Message from the Future by Alexandria Ocasio-Ortez. So, yeah, so I've been just kind of reconciling that, you know, um, I hear um, members of the media and popular culture, you know, for um, an idea of um, Medicare for all, but the problem I have with it is... Um, I don't know if it should, should really be called the Green New Deal, because <laughs> I think the first New Deal, um, a, a depression preceded it. So do we, do we need a Green New Depression <laughs> to precede the Green New Deal? And it, it seems, um, you know, with this latest thing, I've been listening to a lot of, um, I don't listen to a lot, but I listen to a, a podcast called DH Unplugged, which talks about the financial markets, and there was an actual thing within people who follow financial markets that it was going, it was actually too robust, and it would crash very hard if it wasn't slowed down some way. So I'm not sure how much this 15 days of people not working was an attempt to actually slow down this market that was going way too fast, and it was going to, you know, explode. So I really don't have the um, expertise to really talk about uh, the finances, but that is something else to think about. That, uh, should we all stop working at once? And what are 
what is actually going to be the consequences of all this. But I'm trying to focus in on all the good consequences and staying home, making elderberry syrup. I made, I had one half cup of elder, dried elderberries, and I was able to make a lot of syrup from just a little tiny bit. And I was in Susan Weed's uh, Zoom channel talk last night, and um, somebody mentioned they have no elderberry. What do they do? <laughs> And I really, I should have probably piped in, and there's other things that, you know, elderberry is not the be-all, end-all. It just seems like it's very concentrated. That's what I mean, um, as far as, you know, the dark berry family. But there's cherries, there's plums, there's cranberries, all kinds of these berries really give you a lot of the same benefits and the flavonoids of that, you know, that are in elderberry. So I think elderberry has been individually studied to be uh, an aid for people who are battling viral illnesses. And I don't know if it can prevent you from contracting a viral illness, but I have a very strong feeling that it will um, diminish or um, minimize the duration and you know the intensity of feeling sick. But at the same time, I really don't consider elderberry the be all end all, you know, it's part of my life. I use it regularly. Whenever I get any kind of scratchiness, any kind of like inkling that I might be catching something, I grab elderberry and I grab St. John's wort and I grab stinging nettles, uh, herbal infusion. So there's a lot of things just to strengthen ourselves and not be these people who, um, you know, they catch a, catch a coronavirus and, they, you know, they have to be hospitalized and some die. So I don't know if the people listening to this show, we're, we're all really healthy and, and drinking uh, herbal infusions regularly. We're exercising. We're getting a lot of sunshine. I don't know if we have much to fear about a coronavirus killing us. But it will probably kill some of us. And that just seems to be the, the case every year with the, you know, the regular flu. I uh posted a little slideshow on um, tonight's um, show, and you can find it at Blog Talk Radio backslash Susan Weed, People's Medicine Show, April 2nd, and um, it shows that, yeah, between eight and 22,000 people die every year of regular flu, and I don't know all the, the numbers, but today I read a really... So I had this idea that, oh, they, they just need to test, the, test everyone for antibodies and figure out who already got this thing. <laughs> and now I'm finding out there really is no way to test for, to, to tell if you got this latest coronavirus, you know, the, the, the newest and biggest one ever. You know, there's been coronaviruses for a long time uh, traveling all around the world. I guess the last one that really got a lot of uh, attention was the SARS virus. But again, I don't think SARS killed, you know, more than 10% of the people who contracted it. So I don't know if, um, you know what I mean, um, if I'm talking this down too much. But um, And perhaps uh, next month when I come back on the show, I'll have a lot of different opinions of what, what I feel right now. But last month, or at the beginning of the 15-day period, I had this idea, oh, they just need to test for antibodies. And 
they'll be able to track this and really get a really cool set of data sets from having everyone test it, you know, across the population. First, I don't think everyone will consent to be tested for, and then secondly, today's, um, today's newspaper from CNN Health, I'm going to just read this short article, and the FDA actually authorized the first coronavirus antibody test. And there was a lot to learn from just reading this short, you know, fluffy CNN article. So I'm going to go ahead and read it, and perhaps I'll have a little bit more to say after I finish reading it. Okay, April 2nd, 2020. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has issued its first emergency use authorization for a coronavirus test that looks for antibodies in the blood. That type of test, called a serology test, would be able to identify past coronavirus infections, although it may be less effective at identifying recent ones. The authorized test from a manufacturer called Celex Inc. requires blood to be collected through a vein, and the test itself can only be performed in certified lab. Because antibodies can take time to develop, the FDA has previously warned against using antibody tests to definitively diagnose coronavirus. But in issuing what is known as an emergency use authorization for the new test, the FDA signaled that the benefits of using the new blood test outweighed the risks. Based on the totality of scientific evidence available to FDA, it is reasonable to believe that your product may be effective in diagnosing COVID-19, said the agency, adding that, quote, the known and potential benefits of your product when used for diagnosing COVID-19 outweigh the known and potential risks of your product. Unlike most coronavirus tests, which generally require a swab and look for signs of the virus itself, antibody tests look instead for our body's response to a virus. The FDA said in its letter that initial antibodies against coronavirus are generally detectable in blood several days after initial infection. But the agency cautioned that, quote, Levels over the course of infection are not well characterized. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says it is also working to develop a serology test or blood test that could look for antibodies, which would develop even in people with mild or no symptoms. Such tests can allow officials to better understand how prevalent coronavirus infections truly are because they can identify people who had previously infected, who had been previously infected but showed little or no symptoms. On Tuesday, a company called BodySphere falsely claimed that an FDA emergency use authorization was issued for an antibody test that could detect coronavirus in two minutes from a pinprick of blood. <laughs> Boy, there's a lot of bullshit going on. All right, let me continue to read. <laughs> All right, multiple news outlets reported on the announcement. 
but later retracted their articles after the FDA confirmed that no such test had been authorized at the time. On Wednesday, the company acknowledged that the test had not in fact received authorization. FDA guidance issued last month allows antibody tests to be manufactured and distributed without such authorizations, but any explicit authorization from the FDA, such as the one issued to Celex, is a sign that regulators have confidence in a test validation data and believe its benefits outweigh the risks. Okay, so did everyone buy a lot of stock in this company called Celex? Because <laughs> they're the only ones that get the official um, ruling from the FDA that, oh, it might work and it might not work. <laughs> You're officially authorized, and we think that, um, you know, the benefits outweigh the risks of thinking you um, might have been diagnosed with this latest virus, but perhaps you were, you know, perhaps you had a previous coronavirus. That um, I think it's going to be really cool that I think a lot of people will understand that, yeah, coronaviruses are, you know, they've always been around. They're and they fly around the world and they make people sick and they kill people, some people. So I don't know. I, I'm hoping that doing this show tonight perhaps puts people a little bit more at ease and, you know, a little bit more <laughs> less likely to cancel your life because of this. Because I don't think really the evidence is showing us that we need to cancel our lives. And um, I I don't know really what's going to happen with um, the results of, you know, stopping our economy like this for two weeks. And uh, I plan to go back to driving Uber and Lyft very shortly and just carry on my life as usual. I, um, I ordered masks to um, give to people who may be coughing. And um, I think that's another interesting thing. I, I think I spoke about dust masks last. Um, and most people agree that, yeah, it's like something to prevent yourself from uh, getting a coronavirus. Uh, wearing a mask all the time is going to do it. And I think um, in China, where they've been using masks for 20 years, and it's just firmly in their culture, from what I understand is the people that you see wearing masks are people who um, generally are sick, and I guess this would this would not amount of the masks that they use for everyday pollution. But I mean, when people are wearing a mask in China, it generally means they don't want to spread illness. It's not that they're trying to prevent illness, and it's sort of um, a courtesy within their culture that they'll wear a mask when they have um, a cold and they don't want to spread it. But it really is interesting, the whole uh, physical distancing guidelines that they gave people and how, um, yeah, just breathing uh, produces some aerosol. And they figured out, like, you know, it's like two or three feet or something that, yeah, if you're in an enclosed area with people and they're breathing, there is like a water vapor where, yeah, there's viruses in people's breath. But whether people can spread it uh, in a 27-foot diameter, like, I... I was trying to think of this other article I read recently where, yeah, and I guess the, the uh, Dr. Fasta you know, from the president's office had to say, that's absurd, you know, 27 feet. 
and uh, we just really have to be careful. But um, this article from ProPublica, I'm, I am kind of thinking about going ahead and reading the entire thing. It's really long. Maybe I should take a break before reading it. But it can help um, put a little light on what it means to be asymptomatic. Because, um, yeah, I think um, they may be calling like very mild cases, asymptomatic cases. And I guess if you're not in the, you know what I mean? I think the definition of being asymptomatic um, perhaps will have to have better terminology to describe someone who had zero symptoms to someone who had really very little symptoms. So, um, yeah, because if you have very little symptoms, I guess, Technically, you are not asymptomatic. So I'm going to go ahead and read this article. It's really long, and I'm going to exhaust myself. And uh, <laughs> I think I've, I've covered a lot of things, though. Um, I, I really enjoyed the whole thing of people in our culture and what they do to comfort themselves and having 15 days off of work to be able to just, like, stay home and figure things out for themselves. And, um, yeah, I don't know if that's really, that's going to have a really big benefit of people. I know I, I was in um, hurricanes in 2004 and 2005, and where the part of South Florida that I lived in was shut down for like a month. So, I don't know, it just feels like this is old, familiar territory for me that, yeah, sometimes the world shuts down. You want to be ready for it. And um, a lot of times there's really cool opportunities that happen in these times. So just pay attention. And, um, yeah, just pay attention. So I'm going to go ahead and read this ProPublica article. So actually it was reprinted on the Connecticut Mirror. It's a totally open source uh for, you know, you can republish it all you want, this article. It's by Carolyn Chen. It's titled, What We Need to Understand About Asymptomatic Carriers If We're Going to Beat Coronavirus. <laughs> in the early days of the coronavirus outbreak in the U.S. around last week of February, I joked to a colleague that maybe now, finally, people would learn how to wash their hands properly. My remark revealed a naive assumption I had at the time, which was that all we needed to do to keep the novel coronavirus contained was follow a, simple, a few simple guidelines, stay home when symptomatic, and maintain good personal hygiene. The problem, I thought, was that nobody was following the rules. In the past few weeks, however, more and more reports have emerged to challenge my neat assumptions. Seven out of 14 NBA players, coaches, and staff who tested positive didn't have symptoms when they were diagnosed. The Wall Street Journal reported the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a case study on a nursing facility in King County, Washington, where 23 residents tested positive for COVID-19, and it found that 13 reported no symptoms initial, initially, initially. <laughs> 60 singers went to rehearsal and followed all the rules, according to the Los Angeles Times. Nobody hugged, shook hands, or appeared ill. Yet, three weeks later, 45 were diagnosed with COVID-19, 
or had symptoms of the disease, and two, have died. Um, so that was um, out of 45 people, two people have died, yeah, of that group of people in Los Angeles. With articles about silent, quote, silent spreaders and, quote, stealth transmission flying across the Internet, friends were starting to text me. Was it still okay to go for a walk with a friend, even six feet apart? Or should all interaction be avoided? Should we start wearing masks to the grocery store? At the same time, my colleagues were scrutinizing guidelines at various workplaces and agencies recover. The New York City Fire Department told workers on March 19th they were to come to work, so as long as they had no symptoms, even if they had close, quote, close contact with someone who is known positive COVID-19 patient. According to a document obtained by ProPublica, was that policy wise? I decided to dive into the available data. What I discovered is that not only can people be infected and experience no symptoms or very mild symptoms for the first few days, but this coincides with when the so-called viral load, the amount of virus being emitted from an infected person's cells may be the highest. That makes the virus a truly formidable opponent in our densely packed, globally connected world. We're going to have to be smarter than the virus to stay on top of it. What does asymptomatic really mean? Let's start with the basics. Dr. Maria Van Kerhove, head of emerging diseases and zoonoses unit at the World Health Organization, told me that the WHO so far has found few truly asymptomatic cases in which a patient tests positive and has zero symptoms for the entire course of the disease. However, there are many cases where people are, quote, pre-symptomatic, where they have no symptoms at the time when they test positive, but go on to develop symptoms later. Quote, most of the people who are thought to be asymptomatic aren't truly asymptomatic, said Van Kerhove. When we went back and interviewed them, most of them said, actually, I didn't feel well, but I didn't think it was an important thing to mention. I had a low-grade temperature or aches, but I didn't think that counted. The WHO team sent the team to China and visited community centers, clinics, and hospitals, and transportation hubs. Through their data collection, the team found that 75% of people who were initially classified as, quote, asymptomatic, went on to develop symptoms. She said, this matches up with CDC's findings at the nursing facility in Washington. Of the 13 positives, patients who initially reported no symptoms during their tests can later develop symptoms. But ultimately, the only way to really find out how many asymptomatic COVID-19 carriers are out there would be to conduct blood tests across large swaths of the population to look for antibodies, which are a type of protein that provide evidence that a person's immune system did battle with the coronavirus. Tests that can look for these antibodies are now being developed in several countries for the purposes of containing the outbreak right now. However, Jeffrey Shaman, 
a professor of environmental and health sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health says that the focus on asymptomatics is a bit of a red herring. Quote, in some sense, symptomatic versus asymptomatic isn't really the appropriate dividing line for us to be focusing on, he said. The appropriate dividing line is documented versus undocumented infection. Okay, <laughs> what shaman means by documented is people who are identified as being infected either because they were sick enough to go seek care or were tested through contact tracing, which is when public health officials track down all the contacts of someone who tested positive. The undocumented could be people who have symptoms but didn't get tested because of lack of access to testing dislike of doctors or sheer stoicism. Or more concerningly, people who had no symptoms or such mild symptoms that they decided to just carry on with their daily lives. Maybe they pop some ibuprofen but still go to work, still get on public transportation, still do all the things we normally do. And the consequences of that is that those people with mild infections as well as if they are truly asymptomatic, are taking the virus out into the community and they're spreading it far and wide. Shaman said, Shaman and colleagues published a study in the journal on March 16th in which using a statistical model, they estimated that 86% of all infections in China were, quote, undocumented prior to January 23rd when Chinese authorities cut off Wuhan, canceling all planes and trains leaving the city. This would explain the rapid spread of the virus across the country, they said, concluding that their findings indicate containment of this virus will be particularly challenging. The disease is spread by liquid droplets, but the human body has lots of ways of creating these minuscule virus-laden flecks. If there are thousands of asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people out in public, how are they transmitting the disease if they're not coughing or sneezing? After all, as I'm sure as many of us have heard, the disease spreads primarily via droplets. The Who's Van Kerhove said, research so far shows that water droplets are not necessary to transmit the virus. And they need and they need to go from the infected person's mouth or nose into someone's eyes, nose, or mouth. People can also get infected if they touch a contaminated surface where a droplet has fallen onto and then touch their eyes, nose, or mouth. But sneezing and coughing aren't the only ways droplets get transmitted. People clear their throat, Van Kerhove pointed out. Some people spit when they talk. I winced. Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at Columbia's Mailman School, provided more vivid descriptions for my mental tableau. Droplets are not necessarily huge like globs. We release respiratory droplets when we speak. When you go outside it's really, and it's really cold out, you see your breath fog. That's respiratory droplets, she said. This doesn't mean that the coronavirus is being transmitted as an, quote, aerosol, 
which is the term that many researchers use when virus particles remain suspended in the air for long periods of time. That applies to the measles virus, for example, which is why that microbe is so incredibly contagious. However, it does mean that if you're standing right next to someone who is infected and they're talking to you, or say, if you're in a room full of singers who are projecting their voices in an enclosed space, there are going to be droplets in the air, and yes, you could inhale them. What's still fuzzy is exactly how far one needs to stand in order to be ideally protected from coronavirus droplets. The WHO says one meter or 3.2 feet. The CDC says six feet. <laughs> Just a moment. One option is Caesar's Palace on S. Las Vegas Boulevard in Paradise. Do you want to admit one? No, thank you, Siri. The next one is the form shop at Caesars on it. Oh, isn't that funny? Siri interrupted my reading. Okay, let's let's um, start where I got interrupted. What's still fuzzy is exactly how far one needs to stand in order to be ideally protected from coronavirus droplets. The WHO says one meter or 3.2 feet. The CDC says six feet. Lydia Buru-Iba, a fluid dynamics expert at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, published a paper last week that said peak, quote, peak exhalation speeds, unquote, can create, quote, a cloud that can span approximately 23 to 27 feet. <laughs> okay, so Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, later called the study terribly misleading while the exact measurements are being debated the, ex the experts I spoke to said that if you have to leave home staying outdoors is the safest bet since open air can help dilute any potential microbes that reach you while of course this isn't free of risk one has to balance that risk against for example the mental and physical health benefits of going out for a run. So keeping, so keep going out to exercise, the experts said, maintain a six foot distance at least. <laughs> You're likely most infectious right after you contract the virus, possibly before you know you're sick. So we have a virus that can transmit from one person to another, standing a few, few, few feet apart in the course of a conversation perhaps helped along by a few errant throat clearings. While the infected person either didn't have any symptoms yet or had a few minor body aches, they didn't think much of it. That's already a recipe for a bad outbreak, but this coronavirus has another, another aspect that's helping to amp up its contagion factor. Studies are now finding that people are shedding more virus during early stages of the disease rather than the later stages. The term shedding may bring to mind my cats, whose fluff seems to evade even my most ardent of vacuuming attempts. But it doesn't actually mean that the virus particles are being emitted off patient skin in an infectious cloud. It's a term used by researchers measuring the amount of viral RNA from someone who is infected from a sample gathered via a method like a throat swab. A study of 94 patients in Guangzhou, China found that, 
quote, the highest viral load in throat swabs at the time of symptom onset and concluded that that meant that patients would be most infectious right before or at the time when symptoms started appearing. The study was published online as a preprint and has not been peer-reviewed, but lead author Dr. Gabriel Long, Journal of Nature Medicine, in the journal Nature Medicine. Another study also conducted by researchers in Hong Kong and published in the journal Lancet last week found that the viral load this time in saliva sample was the highest during the first week after symptom onset and subsequently de declined with time. Okay, the author of the Lancet paper noted that this profile contrasted COVID-19's coronavirus cousin SARS, where the peak viral load was around 10 days, and, and MERS at the second week after onset of symptoms. COVID-19's viral load profile actually appears to be more similar to the flu, the authors wrote, which also, quote, peaks at around the time of symptoms onset. Viral load is thought to correlate with a person's patient's ability to infect others. When the peak comes later on during the course of disease, it's more likely that a patient will have already sought care, been tested, and either started treatment or gotten instructions to stay isolated. The high viral load early on in the course of the disease for a COVID-19 patient, quote, suggests that the virus can be transmitted easily, even when symptoms are relatively mild, unquote. Wrote the authors of the Lancet paper, this finding, quote, could account for the fast spreading nature of this epidemic. All this makes sense. All this makes it extra hard to set workplace standards. Against this wily virus, it's difficult to set comprehensive guidelines. What we recommend is if you're feeling unwell, stay home, says, said the Who's Van Kerhove. That sounds simple, but after our conversation, I was doubtful as to how to carry this out. What counts as, quote, unwell? If I wake up with a scratchy throat, how can I tell if that is that seasonal allergies or potentially early COVID-19 symptoms? When's a headache just a headache? I'm fortunate that I may be able to work from home for the past month and rarely need to leave my apartment, but many aren't that lucky. My colleague, Michael Grabel, recently wrote about workers in the meatpacking industry who often don't have paid sick days and work shoulder to shoulder. Even on paper, their employees say they don't want team members who feel sick to come to work. It's unclear what counts as sick enough that they won't get in trouble. I asked the CDC, given what its own studies are finding on asymptomatic transmission, how workplaces are supposed to set policies, and the agency directed me to this page, which says, employees who have symptoms, i.e. fever, cough, or shortness of breath, should notify their supervisor and stay home. Okay, thank you, CDC. Like the WHO instructions, they really don't seem to address the questions posed by a virus that can be spread by people before they experience symptoms. But it's also understandable why agencies are setting guidelines around black and white things like fevers, which are objectively measurable, and coughs, 
which is also a binary call. It's pretty much impossible for the CDC to weigh in all the possible symptoms that this coronavirus might cause, especially more subjective ones like mild headache or fatigue, even if they could turn out to be early COVID-19 symptoms for some. Dr. Raphael Vicitti, a professor of pediatrics at John Hopkins, John Hopkins School of Medicine, who worked on a vaccine for the SARS coronavirus, notes that there are different standards being asked of the general population and of essential workers for good reason. On a population basis, the message has, been, has to be strong, it has to be consistent, and it has to be repeated. We have to exercise maximum social distancing, he said. But when you start saying, well, what about the people that have to go to work? <laughs> Hospitals that are short-staffed don't have the luxury of having conservative policies and telling staff to stay home and quarantine themselves before they exhibit symptoms, even if they've been exposed to someone who has a confirmed infection. The problem is we need the healthcare responders because we have to care for the critically ill. So there's probably going to, <laughs> to need to be an exception, said Columbia's shaman. And they're going to have to rely on their PPE, the personal protective equipment, to prevent them from spreading it to other people. <laughs> okay, so the city acknowledged you are giving one message to the people you're asking to work and another message to the general population. For sure, some people are forced to take slightly greater risks. We've got to fight this virus with all we've got. Here's how we do that. Since symptoms-based policies alone cannot be perfect, we need to turn to other strategies to catch the people who slip through the gaps presented by the broad quote, if you're feeling unwell, stay home, unquote, type recommendation. In recent days, there's been a new enthusiasm for masks, with many calling for widespread use among the general public. The idea that is that masks could prevent droplets from traveling far, particularly from an asymptomatic person who doesn't yet realize they're infected. Lung from the University of Hong Kong is a fan of this idea. Wear a mask, preferably universally, in public spaces. He said, when I asked him how to solve the problem of asymptomatic transmission. But he also pointed out that there's a practical hurdle to this plan. Quote, of course this is not possible for some places where there are mask shortages, even for hospital workers, unquote which would be most of the United States. After months of saying that healthy individuals should not wear masks, administration officials are now considering guidance for much broader community-wide use of masks. Fauci told CNN on Tuesday, let me just um, repeat that. After months of saying that healthy individuals should not wear masks, Administration officials are now considering guidance for much broader community-wide use of masks, Fauci told CNN on Tuesday. That was two days ago. They are kind of uh, considering changing their mind about whether uh, 
people without symptoms should wear masks. Okay. So I picked that up from this article. I'm going to continue reading. We're almost done. In an absence of an abundant supply of masks, which, by the way, also need to be worn properly to provide protection, both the WHO and CDC stressed how important social distancing was. COVID-19 spreads between people who are in close contact with one another, the CDC said in a statement. That's why the CDC recommends staying at least six feet away from other people so someone doesn't spread the disease if they are sick or exposed through contact with someone who is sick. Not only can social distancing protect you as an individual, but the better general public is adhering, is adhering to these guidelines and staying home the less virus will be circulating in public to potentially infect paramedics, grocery store workers, and public works employees, and other essential staff. For workers who absolutely have to turn up in person, Columbia's Rasmussen explained to me that dose also matters. We understand this in instinctively. If someone infected sneezes straight at you from a foot away, splattering your entire face with wet gunk, you're going to feel more nervous about your likelihood of getting sick than if a single virus landed in your mouth. It's not always as simple as you come in contact with a single infectious particle and you're going to be infected, Rasmussen said. You usually have to have a certain number of those particles in order for them to evade the immune system, get past the mucus barrier that's in your nose and throat, come into contact with a cell that has the virus receptor on it, and then get into the cell and start replicating. <clears throat> so increasing the chance that the viral will be, quote, diluted, unquote, is important. That means workplaces like meatpacking factories and delivery warehouses should do whatever they can to space out their workers and not have meetings en masse in indoor spaces where droplets are likely to persist and don't have a chance to be carried away by wind. And of course, companies should have generous sick leave policies so workers can err on the side of caution if they do, not, if they do feel unwell. And let us not forget about testing. Testing is critical because it can let people know if they're sick before symptoms emerge and prompt them to self-isolate. At a big picture level, testing helps public officials know where the disease is spreading and better allow them to direct resources and response efforts. I was wrong to ever think that curbing the novel coronavirus would be simple. It's truly a dastardly bug. But I'm confident we can be smarter, even if COVID-19 doesn't vanish and become a seasonal illness. If we give it all we've got, I think we've got a good chance of getting this stealthy virus under control. And uh, it said, Joe Sexton is contributing reporting. So I enjoyed reading that article. And um, so I think as a person like me who's going to be driving Uber and Lyft, uh, and I don't already have the virus, it's probably likely that I'll um, eventually contract it. So I think um, perhaps I'll wear a mask just as for the next month or two. So let me look at my 
Amazon tracking page, and I'll, I'll tell you the math that I got. I was like, last month, at the beginning of the month, I was like, oh, okay, someone who may be in my list may need a mask, so I ordered some masks. So let me look at my mask order. I'll tell you <laughs> the company that I ordered them from. And it was funny because I think the very – let me tell you the day that I ordered these. And they said April 6th. Okay, it says arriving April 7th to April 28th. You see, the company's called Wishlist, so it's probably a fake company. It, um, it appears that the listing is – so perhaps the masks I ordered will never arrive anyway. It's so funny that here we go. Uh, Siri, I don't need anything. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's funny that I'm doing this show right near uh, an iPad that has um, the voice thing activated. So I've been interrupted twice. But I've had a great time uh, doing the show this month. I uh, spent an hour on the air with only one little tiny little clip. Uh, perhaps next month I'll I'll be able to get a good clip of that um, wonderful um, discussion about how people have been trying to build out the infrastructure of hemp since the 1990s, and the people up in Canada who've had pretty much unrestricted um, access to fields and fields of hemp, they've only been able to develop a seed and like protein powder industry that they get to really build out the infrastructure to um, turn paper into cloth, turn paper into paper, turn, turn, I mean, turn hemp into cloth, turn hemp into paper, or turn hemp into building materials. And it appears that um, from the research that I've done about, you know, you have a field of hemp and you want to build, you want to use it to make building materials. The machine to do that is, I think, approximately $2 million dollars and I'm not even sure if the $2 million price tag would include, like, the installation and the training to use um, such a machine. That may be another million dollars to, um, you know, to, to install a machine and to uh, train people to use it. So I don't know, like, the cost of um, bringing out these really cool, you know, quote, green technologies that, you know, um, so I'm... Hopeful that I'll be able to just um, the episode of Hash Church that I clipped was from this pre this last Sunday, so it was uh, March 29th, 2020. So yeah, check that out on YouTube. I think it was about uh, two hours into the show. It's a three-hour show. That's why I thought it would be helpful to clip it. So next month I'll probably be clipping it. So I think I have discussed everything I wanted to discuss, but I was in the Zoom chat last night. And someone mentioned that I don't have elderberry. What do I do? And it's like, yeah, use tart cherry juice. Use uh, any kind of like dark berry, and you're going to get a lot of the same benefits that uh, elderberry offers. So that is uh, my herbal expertise uh, that I'm going to offer in this uh, time of the coronavirus uh, spreading throughout our population and um, not killing most of us. <laughs> so I hate to, you know, be lightly if you're suffering, if you have relatives right now who are on respirators. I do not mean to um, speak, you know, belittle you in any way, but um, I'm just trying to look at this, you know, like on a large, like sort of macro level that it's likely that we'll all be infected and it'll be okay. We'll develop antibodies and we'll, um, 
we'll be okay until the next coronavirus comes around. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to uh, finding out more in the next month and doing a, a much more expanded show next month. I, I love it when I um, have the discipline to clip things that I've heard throughout the month. And I really, you know, I kind of failed this month. I was uh, really interested in my social media life. Uh, I did a lot of work on my social media feeds this month. I worked on my Instagram feed, which can be found at Big Island Botanica. And, you know, so Big Island Botanica in Instagram. And my name is Sean, S-E-A-N-M-U-R-N-I-N. If you'd like to send me clips for me to play on the show, please do. Um, just send me the, the link to YouTube and I'll clip it. And, um, yeah, I've, it's called The People's Medicine Show. And I want, it, I want to really do focus in on public health type of things. And uh, I think keeping the public healthy by uh, sharing what we know about uh, wild plants and inexpensive herbs and foods and um, just real basic, um, you know, all the stuff that my mother taught me as a kid, you know, just to eat a very diet, you know, eat a, a rainbow of foods, you know, and just like diversity, diversity, just keep, um, do not eat all of one thing, you know, spread it around, you know, try to eat five to seven different fruits and vegetables every day. Uh, I know it's kind of difficult in the, in the early spring, but hey, we're in early spring. You can go out and pick nettles and make nettle soup. Beautiful. Um, where, where I'm in Hawaii, there's just no shortage of fruits. And uh, I was really impressed with soursop. It's one of those fruits that you basically, you can only get them in Florida and Hawaii. I don't think they really travel that well. Or I guess if you go to an Asian market, you can find soursop. But it's a, it's a lovely fruit. And um, I found I'll, I'll peel it and stick it in a bowl and then put it in the refrigerator. And it sort of um, ferments a little bit. And it kind of gets better if you... Um, take a soursop and you put it in the fridge for a few days and I have these little glass snapware containers and so that um, I guess that's it for the people's medicine show this this I'll check to see if anyone's called in I would love it if people called into the show but nobody has called in this but please call in add to the show contribute to the show and um, I love everyone and I really I can't get over what's going on in the world. And I think we have a lot more good than bad from, you know, just people getting sort of readjusted, you know, to uh, figuring out uh, who they are. And like I said, you know, just being able to, you know, reconnect, uh, restore your energetic connections and uh, really, you know, I find that that really happened this past month that when told people to stay home they figured it out they're like yeah this, that's what I love and um you know being a busy holic and always be doing 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 we forget about who we are and what we really love so um be good to yourself and um when you're good to yourself you can transmit that same goodness to others and I'll talk to you next month